0: summer a special memorial day issue of the weekly dish we're well, not that special we're just doing our usual but happy summer anyway we're still and i'm still recovering from a huge huge amount of uh, attention and readership last week about half a million people read the read my queers versus homos piece and we'll be tackling some of the responses this week in the dish you can read it in your usual dissent section which is curated and edited by Chris Bodena, so that I can't rig the questions. And this weekend, we're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine and the war. It's been a while since we have, and we had a whole bunch of pods at the beginning of last year when we're trying to figure out exactly what was happening. And one of the, by far the the most interesting and erudite and well-informed people that we talked to, Sam Romani. And so, Given where we are, given the apparent loss of Bakhmut to the Russians, given a complicated and continually evolving situation, I thought I'd invite him back in and pepper him and grill him with questions to figure out exactly where we are in this conflict. He's a a tutor in the Department of Political Science at Oxford and a member of the Royal United Services Institute in London. He's an expert on Russia's wars in Chechnya and Syria, And he's been to Russia and Ukraine many times in the course of getting his international relations DPhil, which everywhere else calls a PhD, the Oxford version. And his forthcoming book is Putin's War on Ukraine, Russia's Campaign for Global Counter-Revolution. Sam, lovely to have you back. And nice to see you. I'm glad you look at least, you look well and rested, even though you've been at it. Goodness knows, the last year must have been an incredibly intense year for you.
1: Oh, it's been incredibly intense. I mean, this book had to be written in about five or six months, and now I've been just traveling all over doing promotions. And if people are interested in the book, it's available globally on Blackwell's. It's coming out in the U.S. Uh, officially very soon.
0: Good. Well, we'll 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 look out for it. Where have you actually been in Europe?
1: So I've basically been in the uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, France, mostly there. Just like and then probably going elsewhere.
0: One of the things that has, and we'll, maybe we'll start with this, that's really impressed me and I think have been surprising in the last year, is that against a lot of predictions, including my own worries, the European countries have generally stuck together in a rather impressive fashion. There's been no major defections from the, the sort of anti-Russian front. Tell us some what your impressions are about the Western European response to the war.
1: So I think I've been actually very impressed and surprised, like you are, by the degree of unity that we've seen from European countries in terms of providing military support for Ukraine, and also the willingness of European countries to test those so-called escalation risks that Russia usually retaliates with, with some kind of nuclear blackmail or brinkmanship. And it's been very interesting to see that that abandonment of caution is not just coming from the uh, states that are more hawkish that you'd expect, like Poland or Czech Republic, or Britain for, in many cases, but also from those who were traditionally a lot more cautious, like Italy, France, and Germany. We saw Germany, for example, with uh, the new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, agreeing to pledge 2.7 billion euros in defense equipment to Ukraine during Zelensky's visit last week. The Germans have supplied the leopard tanks after months of uh, delaying and counting that out. The French appear to be offering security guarantees to Ukraine of some sort and are also supplying uh, potentially long-range missiles, if you look at Emmanuel Macron's latest interview, and even Italy, which is a traditionally such a friendly relationship with Russia, and at one point wanted Russia to return to the G8 back when Trump was president. Now they're supplying lethal arms to Ukraine in large quantities. So I think I'm very, very impressed with the degree of unity that we're seeing in Europe on this issue, and it'll be interesting to see if this extends to other issues relating to sanctioning Russia as well as China and other geopolitical areas.
0: Yeah, Maloney is a particularly interesting example of this. Can you explain to me, and I know I'm going to ask you all sorts of big questions, but a lot of us were wary that Maloney, being from the old far right, would, and being from a party that is a little EU-skeptical, to say the least, might have been reluctant or squeamish on this question, but... But no, she seems to have actually been one of the strongest supporters. Where does she, is the Italian public
1: opinion in that place too? So uh, Maloney was something of a surprise, I think, for a lot of analysts, because many people were concerned that, you know, she'd been entertaining the idea of forming a coalition with Silvio Berlusconi, who, of course, had a famously close relationship with Vladimir Putin and has made some offhand comments that would be suggestive of the fact that NATO, not Russia, is the real aggressor and... Also, there's a history of Euroskeptic far right movements in Italy, like Matteo Salvini's uh, Lega Nord, for example, being extremely supportive of engagement with Russia to the point in which we were looking into and wondering whether there were some kind of clandestine Russian financial or other Russian influence links over there. So Maloney has really surprised a lot of people, and she's really kept her word from where she promised in the election campaign that she was going to take a firmer and a stronger stance. And I think that it's part of a broader movement also towards aligning with the views of the United States, as well as, to some extent, Britain, and more of the hawkish Western bloc on great power competition. Maloney is now broaching, for example, withdrawing from China's Belt and Road Initiative, which was a signature movement for the BRI inside Europe. With regards to Italian public opinion, though, I think Italian public opinion on the war, we look at opinion surveys, is consistently uh, more measured and more uh, skeptical of long-term military and economic support for Ukraine. But, but there, and you also see the Italian media sometimes uh, uh, being a bit too sympathetic towards Russia, or allowing Russian uh, interviews to be aired without any kind of critical assessment. I think we saw that quite notably during that interview with Sergey Lavrov last year, when Lavrov said that Hitler was Jewish and all these other things. The Italian media really didn't push back as strongly as we would have hoped for. But I think that remind,
0: uh, me, of that. remind yeah. me of that. Remind me of that because I, 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 you may have paid attention to it. But Lavrov was on Italian TV and said something about Hitler.
1: What? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing was that Lavrov was on Italian media uh, last I year. See. And he was talking about that. And it was a, it was a TV show, uh, Zona Bianca. And it was about the situation in Ukraine. And there was a lot of controversy that followed it, particularly from the Jewish communities across the world. What did Lavrov say exactly? So basically, he was trying to defend the whole notion of denazification as defined by Russian propaganda. So basically, what the Russians like to say about denazification is that Nazism is not just about Hitler and not just about killing Jews. It's not just about far-right extremism. It's about a way of humiliating. It's about a way of degrading another race, another ethnicity, another culture, and also trying to marginalize and isolate it. So they try to compare effectively what they see as the West efforts to isolate Russia or Ukraine's alleged discriminations against ethnic Russians inside the country as a form of Russophobia that's equivalent to Nazism. So wow. it's basically, that Nazism is not just about about killing Jews and they can take forms. It can even be Jewish Nazis and like Hitler also had Jewish heritage, which of course was is a debunked conspiracy theory that enraged people, including in Israel.
0: I would, I would, I would hope and expect so. Yes, but that's 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 nonetheless interesting about the rhetoric and views that are inside Russia leading to the support for this regime but before we go there which we will in a second I just want to talk about britain too because boris was uh, was zelensky's big buddy and went out very strongly in defense of ukraine and in support of ukraine quite early but of course boris disappeared then we had the instant uh, implosion of Liz Truss, but then Rishi Sunak, whom one thinks of not really in the Boris mode, in more of a sort of international banker type, also seems to have taken a particularly strident position vis-à-vis Ukraine and Zelensky.
1: Yeah, well, I think Rishi Sunak is really following along with the consistent British policy, which has been do you know, one step ahead of the United States with regards to the provision of the most uh, sophisticated lethal arms, and then hoping to exert influence on in the world stage by pushing other European countries and the U.S. along to its path, right? So we saw that with the end laws the anti-tank missiles that were sent at the beginning of the war. We've seen that with Challenger tanks. And now we're seeing that with the rhetoric around fighter jets, where Britain offered the training for the Ukrainian pilots, uh, even though, of course, they can't give those F-16s the Ukraine wants themselves. They were giving the green light towards tra- a training program. And then look what happens. Days later, Biden appears to be joining that training program, and it looks as if the F-16s are going to be arriving in Ukraine after all. So it's a pretty consistent policy from Johnson, even to and to Sunak, basically trying to be uh, using this as a way of kind of showing Britain's independent influence on the world stage and being one step ahead of the Western allies in assisting Ukraine.
0: And kind of showing that they can be a European power outside the EU, and also cooperate with the EU in, in policies like this. Uh, it's been quite striking to me how that's been a sort of post-Brexit Britain aggressive role in, on the world stage, not like retiring, but actually trying to spearhead. And when you saw Rishi Sunak and Zelensky meet last week, that was one hell of a bear hug. It, it, it feels sometimes that the two of them are in the two countries, even, Ukraine and the U.K., very tightly wound at this point,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, it seems as if there's a very, very tight relationship between the two, and it's quite interesting to see. You know, I think that's going to last and it's going to continue because Boris Johnson was personally very, very supported and very, very loved by the Ukrainians. To the point in which I think there was one of the Ukrainian MPs, I think, like, Lesya Vasilenko, was talking about naming a street in Odessa after his name, but it seems as if you know his successors have picked up that same kind of goodwill,
0: yeah, which is. Impressive. And, and Russia, of course, to go towards their domestic politics right now. The Russians have been lambasting the United Kingdom with abandon, but then they've been lambasting a lot of countries. What tell us, like, what is the atmosphere within Russia now in terms of public opinion? You see, I mean, the one thing, I'll tell you this, it's kind of a maze that they do air kind of angry dissent sometimes on national television, almost always... Descent coming from the right, but nonetheless, it's not as if this is a completely totalitarian society in which a single line is being peddled from the center. Or Am I misreading that?
1: Well, it's very interesting to see, obviously, what you're looking at in terms of the Russian propaganda and the Russian media landscape. It's very hard, obviously, to really come up with public opinion surveys beyond the state opinion surveys that show approximately eighty percent support for Vladimir Putin and the war, and but. When you look even between the tea leaves of the Levada Center survey, which are independent, what we've noticed over the course of the past six months is growing apathy, particularly from people between the ages of 18 and 40, towards the situation, and a smaller and smaller portion of people in that age group being enthusiastic uh, Z carriers and supporters of a lot of the extreme nationalist narratives. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the Russian state, because I think the Russian state is actually trying to promote apathy as the second best thing to pro-war sentiments, because it doesn't want necessarily a huge extreme far-right challenge developing to it, and also it doesn't want, obviously, liberal dissent to, uh, to take root. And that's why some of the mixed messaging that you're seeing from the propaganda is quite effective. But that is notable. When you're turning to your other point about the Russian state media allowing some degree of disagreements and some degree of movements, it is quite interesting to see generally several lines of, of disagreement. Number one is from some of the hardliners, like you know Alexei Zelenskyev, Zerv- who's one of the who's an MP, talking about the mass mobilization. Like for example, there was a segment that was aired recently talking about how Russia needs to mobilize two to four million more people instead of four hundred thousand more people in order to win the war. The second line is some degree of concern about Russia's level of preparedness in terms of the battlefield situation, with regards to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, with regards to Ukraine's potential to strike Russian territories. Open discussions from Russian experts about the vulnerability of of Russian uh, cities like Moscow to Ukrainian drone attacks. So the lack of air defense systems being present to protect against Ukrainian strikes. That's another area of financial criticism that we're seeing. So we're seeing a lot moving and, and some candid descriptions of the failings of the Russian military.
0: What is the core argument that Putin tells his own people as to why they have not conquered Ukraine why they are still stuck in the Donbass region and why they were not able to take back easily, for example. I mean, what is the actual story that he's telling the the, the Russian public as to why it has not worked out quite the way it has, quite the way he intended it to?
1: Well, I think the story that they're basically telling, and it's being reinforced by all the propagandists, is the notion that, uh, Russia's not fighting a war against Ukraine. Russia's fighting a war against the entire NATO alliance based out of Ukrainian soil. And uh, that is, can be spun and that can be related to some of the uh, propaganda that uh, Putin advanced in the months leading up to the war, even three days before the invasion. He described Ukraine as a militant anti-Russia that's backed by NATO and armed to the teeth. So he described Ukraine not really as a real state with agency, but like a proxy for NATO weapons and NATO military intervention against russia so that's how he's able to perpetuate that narrative and create some degree of believability and his surrogates are more than willing to promote that for example for over a year olga skabeva who's one of the most popular hosts on russian state tv has basically argued that we were in the middle of world war III and that nato is fighting against russia and that somehow uh, russia is the david and nato is the goliath and we're seeing others like you know the head of our team Argo going to simonian basically claim that russia actually defeated ukraine in two or three days and now has been fighting for the remaining 400-plus days against NATO forces. And there's also a lot of conspiracies about the number of NATO military trainers and instructors and foreign fighters who have allegedly perished in this war, sometimes outlandishly, citing thousands of casualties. And also—
0: Of NATO it, casualties, that they're claiming.
1: To, by looking at the level of demilitarization of Ukraine and the destruction of the Ukrainian economy. So, they gloat about the more than 30% decline in Ukrainian GDP, some of the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure, and that could make it hard for Ukraine to join Western institutions. They come up with false casualty assessments, which could show up to north of 200,000 Ukrainians being dead, and Russians like one seventh or one eighth of that dying, and also the destruction of lots of military equipment, like everything from HEMAR systems to now the Storm Shadow missile and the Patriot systems. So. They come up with a lot of other excuses to kind of demonstrate success in other ways rather than just the capture of territory
0: I see, and but they are not also wrong entirely in saying that this is at this point a NATO enterprise I mean it, the amount of munitions support training now we have f 16s the economic and military support for the United States is is extraordinarily high that nato's own Reserves are being depleted of ammunition. I mean, surely the the Russians are not wrong about this, even though it didn't start that way. What you now, if if Ukraine did not have the support from NATO and from other countries, it it would not be in a position to win, right, or even hold this off.
1: Definitely, I mean, that's definitely the case, and it's ironic that Russian aggression against Ukraine has kind of brought this upon themselves. What the Russians were worried about, as in terms of arguing that Ukraine was a de facto extension of NATO before the war, were just some drills in the naval sphere in the Sea of Azov, or the movement of some defensive weaponry from NATO countries towards Ukraine. That was seen as enough to making Ukraine part of NATO or a proxy of NATO. Now look where where we are, like in terms of the supply of fighter jets, the supply of artillery. Yeah, I think that there is a a point to that, that Russian aggression has really brought Ukraine informally and effectively as a member of NATO. And it was interesting to see Alexei Reznikov, the Ukrainian defense minister, actually say that outright in a recent interview. He said that Ukraine is de facto part of NATO.
0: Well, they have to coordinate. <laughs> they, have to, they have to be in touch with every country in NATO. They are, they are obviously sharing some war plans with big NATO. It, it is this incredible paradox that, that, that a war that was launched because allegedly NATO was threatening Russia – has led to uh, NATO's expansion and strengthening and looks like you know at, at, at least let's say what 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 would be left of Ukraine at the end of this war, depending on what happens, definitely would be leaning towards a more nato oriented foreign policy and identity, right?
1: Right, yeah. And it's interesting to see also like what's happened with regards to the the, the changes in terms of the rhetoric about NATO membership too. So it does seem as if like many Western countries are talking about either fast-tracking NATO membership, like Poland leading the way, or talking about NATO membership for Ukraine uh, happening after the war. And that's something that countries like France and Germany before the war would never even want to contemplate, even though, of course, there was that famous uh, statement in 2008 where NATO promised Georgia and Ukraine membership, that the, the European countries really were not actually serious about following through on that, and neither really was the United States. So that's really quite an interesting thing to see that the discourse on long term integration of whatever's left of Ukraine into NATO seems to be enduring.
0: So let's ask a big question. We are a year and four months, five months, something like that into this war. Who is winning?
1: Well, I think that it's hard to exactly tell, but I would say Ukraine. And this is why. Number one, I think that Russia's offensive potential has been now almost terminally degraded. And we noticed that really from the context of the most recent winter and early spring offensive. The only thing that they were able to do was take over Solodar and Bakhmut, and they were able to do so with such heavy casualties, right? We're looking at perhaps on all the front lines, not including including Bakhmut, where the majority of these people are, 100,000 Russian soldiers being killed or potentially injured to the point in which they can't return to the battlefield. This, this This winter you're talking about? Yeah, just in the five months from December to May. That was the the U.S. estimates that were coming forward. Ukrainian estimates would be even higher than that. We're looking at a staggering loss of life, particularly amongst conscripts and amongst the convicts who were recruited by the Wagner Group in terms of paramilitary functions. And also Russia's inability to really launch further offensive operations beyond where they've gotten. They can't even seem to make headway in larger cities like Slovians and Kramatorsk, let alone advance along multiple axes like they hoped for, which was Zaporizhia, Kharkiv, and then potentially... On towards uh, Kiev. So the Russians have lost their offensive capabilities. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have suffered heavy losses in Bakhmut, including among some of their most elite territorial defense forces. But they've also siphoned off enough high level forces, gotten them trained in Western countries, in Germany, in Poland, in Britain, to be able to launch a counteroffensive. And now they have more equipment than they could ever have dreamed of to be able to achieve that. Also, Ukraine now has the ability to strike infrastructure in the Russian-occupied territories, logistics hubs, as well as airfields in Crimea, and even surreptitiously strike and cause chaos inside Russia's borders. So that's why I think that Ukraine is in a much more advantageous position uh, than Russia is right now.
0: When you say Russia, Sam, it's it's quite confusing when you're over here because you have the Wagner Group, you have Prigozhin, Who appears to be the person occupying Bakhmut. I mean, that's the major force there, right? So and yet he is, while occupying Bakhmut, while fighting really hard for it, is then openly badmouthing the Kremlin and the Russian war machine. This is this is not something that one usually sees. In, in wartime from... So tell us, explain a little bit more. We know the Wagner Group is operating sort of uh, alongside the Russian military, but to what extent is it actually independent of Putin's direction?
1: So the Wagner Group is basically a paramilitary force that's aligned most closely with the Russian intelligence services, especially the Russian main intelligence directorate, the GRU. And Evgeny Prigozhin. Has served in a variety of functions for it. Sometimes as financier, and sometimes as a middleman who negotiates contracts with foreign actors on the behalf of the Russian military. Increasingly, however, Prigozhin has gained a lot more autonomy as this war has progressed. So while originally the Wagner Group was confined in the early operations in Kiev as something of a shock force, basically that was engaged in sabotage operations but with directives from the Kremlin on how to assassinate Zelensky, a complement to existing Russian military forces or Chechen paramilitaries. Now they become something of a freestanding military organization. They've got independent financing routes, which come from mineral reserves, especially gold and diamond reserves in countries like Central African Republic and Sudan. They have independent recruitment, which came through from Prigozhin's active recruitment efforts everywhere from fitness centers to prisons though the Ministry of Defense is now reigning in some of the prison uh, movements. And they also have an unprecedented degree of autonomy over strategy, where they don't have to respond to the power vertical, and they can make decisions on the spot. And Prigozhin, because of his personal relationship with Putin, has been given free expression, basically, to criticize and to attack Shoigu, Gorazimov, and other perceived enemies, like the St. Petersburg governor. And I think that he's being allowed to do that because Putin doesn't want any single apparatus within the security services to become too powerful and likes this kind of uh, bickering because it makes him look like a statesman.
0: I see. So in in some ways, allowing these bickering parties to continue openly allows him to be the kind of decider of of these squabbles, the, the, the person somewhat above it. Well, what if something like the Wagner Group and Prigozhin, you say they have their own financing now,
1: What if they start acting completely independently of Putin? What would happen then? So the question is how much of their own financing that they have. We have a report from the Financial Times which showed that Prigozhin pocketed $250 million personally from mining reserves in Africa. And uh, that was probably a cut of the overall amount that the Wagner Group raised. The Wagner Group likes to present itself as an organization that can basically advance Russia's geopolitical interests and Russia's military campaigns free of charge or at a profit to the Russians. But in reality, as the Wagner Group has expanded, its ability to do that is less clear. We were looking at U.S. intelligence estimates, for example, showing that the Wagner Group needs $100 million a month in terms of payments. And that really cannot be sufficed only from their indigenous uh, mining reserves that that they're bringing in. And that was when the group had about 50,000 people, so 40,000 convicts and 10,000 more trained mercenaries they're also paying Central Asians and paying Russians much higher salaries than the Russian military normally would do to recruit them. So mm-hmm. that's why I think in spite of his claims of independence, uh, uh, he's, all, he's having to go still to organs of the Russian state for financing, for also for munition supplies. There were leaked documents that showed that actually the Russian Ministry of Defense, for all of its bravado, gave the Wagner Group substantial amounts of munitions for their campaign in Bakhmut. And it's ironic that they're doing that because private military companies like Wagner are illegal under Russian law, and the Russian state is being seen in these leaked documents explicitly giving money to an illegal organization. So, given that the fact that they're financing links in an independent way are not enough, really, to sustain themselves, they still need those organs of the Russian military. That even though Putin, even though Prigozhin describes despises the leadership so much, that means that I don't think that they really have the ability to independently go rogue and challenge for power. Also, Prigozhin's personal popularity and political support base is really, really limited. His only real supporters in the Russian Duma, for example, are the Just Russia Party of Sergei Mironov, which has only got uh, a couple of MPs, and one of them who's calling for the legalization of private military companies. So he's got a very, very small support base, even amongst that ultranationalist far right, because many of the other figures in that ultranationalist far right like the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, Leonid Slutsky, or the MH17 perpetrator, Igor Gherkin, openly despise him and criticize him.
0: Tell us more about the Russian far-right, because it seems that they are primarily the opposition that Putin is concerned about, or has to seemingly placate. And we talked about this last time you were on. We talked about Dugin to some extent. What is, how has the war changed them? Do they feel emboldened? Do they feel that Russia really has now entered a kind of existential conflict with the West in ways that they have predicted? Where are they now? And and what is their influence on Russian public opinion doing?
1: Well, one of the most extraordinary things about this war is that the nature of opposition towards Putin or the biggest threat to Putin has transformed from the liberals, like Alexei Navalny or Vladimir Karamut says, or those people who were fighting against electoral fraud in Bolotnaya Square in 2012. And they moved towards these sort of far-right, extreme, even one might call fascist, Eurasianist uh, nationalists. And uh, many of their ideas are being vindicated by this war. For example, Alexander Dugin wanted Russia to have gone all the way for Tbilisi in 2008 or all the way to Kiev in 2014 or at the very least annexed what they call Novorossiya. So Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Kurzan, Kurzon, Mikhailiv, Odessa, those uh, six regions of Ukraine and uh, seven regions of Ukraine. But uh, it, it, they, the Russians never did that. The Russians were much more engaged in limited-risk military operations. They annexed Crimea. They didn't even send regular forces, at least officially, to the Donbass. They only sent... Uh, Uh, little green men and and proxies with some informal and clandestine Russian military movements there. But now these far-right nationalists have gained a hearing and have gained a lot more respect because they are really uh, presenting this existential narrative, this existential threat coming from NATO and coming from the West that Putin is talking about. They're aligned with other groups like the Russian Orthodox Church, which are essential for Putin's coalition and Putin's long-term legitimacy and they are basically the only space that's allowed to express uh, dissent about how the war is being fought they want the war to be fought more brutally and more aggressively rather than trying to end the war and to combat it and
0: so so what they've actually said is that you should have gone further in 2014 yeah. you shouldn't have been such a wuss it sounds like the neocons criticizing george h w bush for stopping at kuwait coming yeah. back 10 years later and say see we were right. You should have gone all the way to Baghdad. You should have gone all the way to Kiev. But their hands are being strengthened. In other words, you're seeing, and again, I'm 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 just trying to figure out where the public is in Russia too and where the where the winds are are drifting. But it seems like in many wars the the nationalist ultra-right is is strengthened by these kind of binary existential conflicts in, in which NATO seems to be now fully involved. I mean, if you, if you had a hard time saying NATO was in conflict with Russia directly before now, it's pretty pretty self-evident that that is what is actually now happening.
1: Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like these people who did want uh, a much bigger escalation now obviously uh, have a hearing and are now at the mainstreams of policymaking, and two of their representatives are now Putin's most uh, influential security advisors, uh, Nikolai Patrushev and Alexander Bortnikov. And Dmitry Medvedev has also transformed from being something of an advocate of rapprochement with the West, at least officially, into being one of those most hardline voices, which just shows how becoming a hardliner, even instrumentally, is one of the best ways to advance uh, your political agenda inside Putin's system. It's also important to keep in mind that these forces actually predate the 2008 2008 war in Georgia, the 2014 intervention in Ukraine, they've existed basically ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So these are the same figures who in August of 1991 were championing for the hardline communist coup against Mikhail Gorbachev. They're the same people who in 1993 during the constitutional crisis in Russia were backing Vladimir Zirinovsky, the far-right LDPR leader and his uh, efforts to destabilize the country. And they're the same people who throughout the 1990s and early 2000s urged Russia to decouple themselves from the West to uh, everything from going to the gold standard to immunizing and protecting uh, Russian companies from potential Western sanctions and restricting uh, Western investment through capital controls. So people like economist Sergei Glaziev, who was very close to Putin, were advancing these sorts of ideas and also really reorienting Russian foreign policy towards the collective non-West, towards China, towards India, towards Africa, Towards Latin America, and away from Europe and the United States. So, now with this war, and with the NATO's escalation of support for Ukraine, the, those groups have appearing, apparently vindicated, seeing that eventually the West is going to turn against Russia, and we should have uh, implemented our policies and recommendations earlier so we could have been more prepared.
0: How much of public opinion sympathizes with that position? It, you could, I can see why they can claim vindication, but surely at some point it, it seems as if Russia is actually failing in Ukraine to do what it attempted to do. To be honest, I mean, a friend of mine was saying that just watching the war from a distance, it just looks like everything Russia does turns to shit, that that they really can't seem to get anything done, that, they, that, that the image one gets is of a completely chaotic military, half of which has been essentially turned turn over to mercenaries, uh, uh, cannon fodder that has been used up, and is not, there wasn't an, a huge amount to come, and a mess, essentially. I, I don't... I, when, I guess Bakhmut is a victory, and I'm sure they're hyping the victory, but it's a victory at a huge cost as well. At some point, isn't someone saying this is all A massive expense, a massive error, and at some point we've got to acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that the support for these hardline groups at the public level, even if they have a disproportionate voice in the media and telegram and the elite level, is actually quite small. So Yevgeny Purgosian has been trying to earn popularity by trying to present himself, for example, as some kind of a people's oligarch, Right basically criticizing the sons of other oligarchs for not going onto the front lines, whereas he's on the front lines all the time, attacking uh, those uh, people who have decided to stay in the West, uh, living in France, living in Italy, living in Dubai increasingly, and uh, shielding themselves uh, from the impact of the war. And nobody's immune to that. I mean, even Sergei Shogu's son-in-law, who has been involved in Dubai, has been criticized by Prigozhin as being some sort of a traitor. But notwithstanding those kind of populist narratives, I don't think that they really actually are able to gain much cogency and much support from the population for a variety of reasons. Number one, as you state, this war in Ukraine has just gone so badly for the Russians that they can't really even cover it up anymore. The casualties have become too large to be able to conceal through bribery like they did in 2014, or they did after, for example, the modern group mercenaries were killed in Syria, they kind of deflected with disinformation. Also, we're seeing the measures that they're advocating to escalate this war, like mobilization, proved to be extremely polarizing, extremely controversial, and also extremely divisive amongst Russia and its regions. So we saw protests against the mobilization, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but even in areas where Russia thought itself to have an iron grip, like Chechnya under Ramzan Kadyrov was having protests for the first time in Grozny against mobilization. And mobilization was so unpopular... That now they switch towards a lot more clandestine and stealthy means of getting new soldiers. They switch towards an electronic draft register, for example, instead of actually drafting people officially. They're trying to present uh, conscripts as volunteers. They're going at the defense ministry into the prisons even more and trying to recruit more people. So that just shows that the hardliners' agenda, even though it's appealing to a certain elite nationalist bloc, does not really have much popular support. And there is a substantial amount of popular war fatigue inside Russia. The question is, will that war fatigue translate into some kind of discontent when Russia holds elections in 2024? And more importantly, will it cause the Russian elites to consider peaceful negotiations? What,
0: when I think how Putin could declare victory or, or save face in some way, it, if he could argue that they've established complete control of the Donbass, which they haven't, but let's say they did and kept Crimea and claimed to have devastated Ukraine's economy by bombardment and punished them for what was seen to be an alleged provocation against Russia. Would that be enough to save face? I mean, is there any way this man can save face short of occupying
1: Kiev? Well, I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, Vladimir Putin set the initial goals of the war to be extremely large scale, right? Basically, occupying Kiev, changing the regime and replacing the Euromaidan revolutionary government with a pro-Russian proxy or client state, and basically bringing the Russians and the Ukrainians, who have gone on a divided course right now, like basically Ukrainians hating Russians, the West stoking that, becoming one people, one kind of common co-ethnic family again. That was really what he said defined in terms of victory. And it's going to be very, very hard for him, obviously, to achieve that. So he'll have to play with the gyrations of some of his initial rhetoric and use his propagandists to his advantage. So he can conceivably claim, for example, that demilitarization has been been achieved if he can destroy enough of Ukraine's uh, economic infrastructure. And he can claim, whether falsely or correctly, the destruction of large numbers of NATO class weapon systems. He can claim that denazification has been achieved in some port, but just by looking at how he may have limited the effectiveness of some of the far-right battalions, like the Azov Battalion as a as a potential force, the capture of all those fighters in, in Mariupol, that kind of thing. And he could probably claim a victory in a broader sense, you know, if he defines the war to be the liberation of Donbass, if the Russians actually can take over Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea, because they they can they they've already been walking back their claims to Kurzon and Zaporizhia being Russian territory, I that those administrative boundaries will be decided later. But he can claim victory, obviously, if they take over Donbass. But I don't think that they're going to be able to take over the larger cities in Donetsk, like Sloviansk and Kramatorsk, very easily, or at all, given the limitations of their offensive potential. So I think that it's very, very hard for him to really, really claim victory to the public right now. And that makes Putin more unpredictable and more dangerous.
0: Yes, all this leads one to the fear that people have had from the get-go, which is that at some point, if Putin does look as if he could be humiliated or that his conventional forces just don't have enough men or, or, or ammunition to keep going, that he could be tempted to use a weapon of mass destruction of some kind. What are the main reasons why he wouldn't do that?
1: So it's been debated and discussed, really, since the beginning of the war, this possibility. I mean, obviously, with regards to the lower grade use of WMDs, for example, like chemical weapons, the Russians have claimed to be a party to the International Convention against the banning of chemical weapons. They insist that they don't necessarily have them. And there were allegations that they may have used them in a limited sense against the Azov fighters in Mariupol, but those allegations were never confirmed beyond a reasonable doubt. They've uh, used uh, whataboutisms, obviously, to discuss uh, Ukraine, allegedly, using chemicals against uh, the pro-Russian forces or Ukrainian NATO-operated biological laboratories being scattered across the country, being fronts for biological weapons use. But it doesn't seem as if Russia is really moving in that direction to use them themselves. They seem to be kind of uh, using the propaganda, the accusations of Russia on those areas to their advantage. The bigger question, though, is will Russia succumb to the potential use of a tactical uh, nuclear weapon? And uh, obviously, there are a lot of hardliners who would uh, call for that. For example, Dugan's call for the nuclear weapons to be put on alert just as recently as last week when it appeared as if the Ukrainian counteroffensive was looming. We see Vladimir Solovyov, the most popular uh, talk show host on Russian TV, regularly talk about nuking countries as far away as Germany, for example, in some kind of belated revenge for the fact that Germany was not completely denazified after World War II. We're seeing... Dmitry Medvedev basically threatened the existence of Poland. So you're seeing a lot of voices basically talk about and threaten the use of nuclear weapons. But I still think, much like chemical and biological weapons, they will uh, there will be some constraints on their use. I think in particular, there will be constraints coming from the pressure from China and from India, that they will sever economic ties with Russia you know, to a substantial degree if they manage to, to do that, And at least according to some of the Russian experts I was speaking to in September and October which is before the mobilization was chosen and I think was the biggest moment of real danger. They lost in Turkey. They didn't have enough manpower. This was the moment, if they were going to do it, to take some kind of an escalation risk. They were told by the Chinese and the Indians not to do it. I think that that pressure from the non-West will be sufficient to rein Putin in for now.
0: Hmm. Meanwhile, the non-West is certainly trading with Russia. India in particular seems to have developed a much more intense economic relationship with Russia. The Chinese are, you know, playing it, you know, down the line, as it were. They don't quite want to enrage the West, but they they don't want to cut off Russia either. How do you see the rest of the world adjusting or reacting to the war as it progresses? Do you think that China and you're going to become more maybe conceivably part of a peacemaking partnership? Who could fashion some sort of ceasefire if if, if, may, if if, it weren't for China or India?
1: Well, the very big difficulty now is basically how we can get a ceasefire to happen and how can it develop. I mean, Russia's military may be so degraded by the time the Ukrainian counteroffensive comes to an end that they really have not much of a choice but to pursue peaceful negotiations. But they've already set the terms for peaceful negotiations to be so high. Ukraine uh, basically ceding, at the very least, Crimea, as well as uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and other parts of occupied territories in Zaporizhia and Kherson. that the Ukrainians will never agree to that. Alternatively, Zelensky is under immense pressure from his own public, and not to really cede any ground at all. This is a historic opportunity to liberate all of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, and there's uh, rhetoric and discussions even inside Ukraine that the liberation of Crimea may not necessarily be that difficult or that bloody. We've seen the intelligence chief, Kirill bodanov we've seen the defense minister, Alexey Reznikov, actually say that it could occur bloodlessly because Russian partisans will simply go home at the prospect of a Ukrainian invasion, and Ukraine has got enough supporters inside the country, including from the Tatar community, to be able to liberate Crimea easily. So Zelensky gives up and engages in diplomacy before an attempt is taken to uh, liberate Crimea, he will be seen as effectively uh, betraying the country and kind of stabbing the country in the back, so to speak. So there's such hardline, polarized positions on both sides where the Russians can't lose face and admit defeat and the Ukrainians want nothing short of complete victory. It's very, very hard for any kind of foreign power to step in and try to mediate and regulate this sort of situation. Certainly no Western power can do it, which turns us to countries in the Middle East as well as towards China and India. Turkey remains, I think, a very in- interesting player, too, that could do something. They've already managed to extend time and time again, in spite of all the Russian threats and brinkmanship, the black Sea grain export deal. And we've also seen the Saudis and the Emiratis be quite effective in negotiating prisoner exchanges back and forth. So that's what areas of diplomacy where things are going. In terms of the larger grand bargain, like the, the question of you know bringing about a complete resolution of the conflict, that responsibility would probably lie on a non-Western power like China or India. But the big question is, will the Russians necessarily listen to the Chinese or the Indians on that? It seems as if the Chinese peace plan was not getting much better of a reception inside Russia than it was inside the West, where people were concerned that it was legitimizing the occupation of, of Ukrainian territory. So it doesn't seem as if there's really any hope for some kind of a grand bargain in this conflict.
0: Yeah, there's a paradox, isn't there, here, that, that, that the longer the war goes on, the greater the losses on both sides the harder it is, nonetheless, short-term to come to some sort of deal because you're infuriated, you're, you're, you're increasingly polarized, obviously. You hate these people at this point. The possibility of a compromise because seemingly is made more difficult by the, the sheer toll of the war. To, to look at that toll and say, was it worth this? When essentially at this point for Ukrainians, one kind of imagines... Nothing would be acceptable, really, except the liberation of the entire former country, including the Donbass.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there's really nothing the Ukrainians can accept, except, except for the complete liberation of all their territories. And that was basically the first format of the Zelensky Peace Formula, right? which is basically getting the Russians out wherever you can find it. There was a comment from one of Zelensky's advisors, David Akramia which hinted at the possibility that Crimea could be subject to negotiation. There were rumors and discussions earlier in the conflict that Ukraine might broach a resolution which would lead to 10 or 15 years of negotiations on the status of Crimea. But that was in Istanbul, and that was before we saw the Russian atrocities like the Bucha massacre that hardened Ukrainian public opinion even more in terms of determination to win this war. And it's really striking that between 88 and 93% of the Ukrainians in most recent opinion surveys would continue fighting even if Russia used a nuclear weapon.
0: Yeah, that's that's getting to Britain in 1940 territory, isn't it? It's getting to the point where they will fight on the beaches and in the fields to the last degree and one can understand entirely why they would feel that way. But it does make Zelensky's ability to land the plane extremely challenging tell us what you think the prospects for this offensive are and 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 what hi there this is not the end of this podcast in fact we're only just getting going if you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full no extra charge just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just Subscribe. It's very easy, andrewsullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money, and you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.